Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the book of Matthew, so we're going to get right there. If you have a Bible, you go to Matthew 27. If you don't, don't worry. Um, I'm going to put all the relevant verses right up here on the screen. If you're joining us online this morning, man, I'm so glad you're joining us wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life. I'm glad that you took an hour out of your day on this beautiful, sunny day. Um, at least it is here uh, in uh, Monmouth for the first time in about nine months. And so we are glad you're joining us. Uh, Matthew 27, let's just read a verse here. Matthew 27, verse 45, and then we're going to do a lot of talking, okay? So here, let me read this for you. It says this. Now, from the sixth hour darkness, sixth hour is about noon. It's about noon, okay? From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, about the ninth hour, which is about three, if you, you, know, you can do the math, right? Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so here's the deal. If you haven't been with us, if you've missed a couple weeks, if you don't know um, a lot about the structure of the book of Matthew, we're coming very close to the end. Matthew 28 is the end of the book. And so we are, uh, I know some of you are very sad about it. Um, join with me in prayer every morning to pray that God adds chapters to the book of Matthew. Um, uh, <laughs> but we're in, we're, Jesus has been arrested. If you've been around the last couple weeks, we talked about, I mean, well over a thousand people actually were at the arrest of Jesus. Well over a thousand people came to arrest Jesus. Um, Jesus arrested. There's what we often call a trial. It's not really a trial. It's kind of mob justice that occurs in the middle of the night. And then um, Jesus is taken in front of government leaders, and they eventually say, do whatever you want. Right? Do whatever you want with him. We don't, we're, we don't want to deal with it. You take care of it, and you deal with it. And uh, he's flogged and eventually crucified. And, and, and I don't want to just gratuitously um, get into the details of all the kind of the, the, the physical place that Jesus' body is in this moment. But if you haven't done any reading about what Jesus went through, it is, it is grotesque. It is horrendous. It is ugly. Um, in fact, one detail that I'll share with you is um, that most of the time, the, the purpose of a crucifixion was to be uniquely um, uh, slow. The crucifixion, uh, a process of crucifixion was a way for the Roman government to demonstrate their sovereign power over all of your lives. In fact, there's historical accounts where um, people would be executed by, um, by crucifixion and there'd be like a rebellion in a city right? There'd be a rising up, and they say, oh, we don't like those Romans, right? Later, it's going to happen. A couple decades later, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And uh, the, the Roman government show up just in the most powerful force the world had ever seen. They would show up, and they would crush the rebellion. And then there are historical accounts where they would take the men, and sometimes for miles, they would crucify men as you would walk into the city, so that as you would return to that city for days or weeks, there would be dead or dying men hanging on the side of the road as a constant reminder of the sovereign power of the state over your life. This was intended to be humiliating and slow. And in fact, most people who died from crucifixion actually died from drowning, which sounds very weird. Um, 
but when you're hanging, they would have to push themselves up to be able to expand the lungs to be able to breathe. And eventually they would have so much fatigue that they wouldn't be able to exhale completely. And the moisture would begin to accumulate in their lungs and it'd slowly fill with water until they would actually drown hanging up on the cross. That's how most people died. And Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out this statement. So let me ask you this, okay? See the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me ask you this. Don't say anything out loud. Don't raise your hand. Don't, none of that kind of stuff. That's not what this is for. Uh, let me ask you this question to begin with. Um, can God forsake you? Forsake is not a word that we use very often, but let me ask you a different way. Can God abandon you? I mean, you see the words of Jesus hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In my greatest moment of need, in desperation, pain, and suffering, why, where have you gone? Can God abandon you? The Bible is this like incredibly complex, huge, weighty, I mean, the number of words and stories and types of literature, it's this incredibly complex text that we have in scripture. And I think there's a lot of times where our um, lack of familiarity with all of the things that are going on in scripture means that we miss some things. Uh, in fact, I would tell you, this is just kind of free advice. I brought this as an example for you. Um, anytime you're studying scripture, you should have a commentary with you. If you're going through, like, if you're in your quiet time, if you're going through the book of Ephesians, you should have a commentary. Here's a really, um, if you want uh, one that I have in my office that's a very accessible version of it, um, is Zondervan's Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. That's a very long name, but Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. It's great. It's, it's super helpful. You'll see little things it'll reference, it'll cross-reference. I know that you can't see very well um, in person or online, but you know, it'll give you maps and it gives you images and it really kind of helps fill out the picture. You should, when you're studying scripture, you should always have one of these because this is, this is what it kind of serves as. Um, a lot of times when we read scripture, it's like the friend that you have that always cut quotes, like deep cut quotes on movies that nobody's ever watched. Do you have that friend? right? Um, you're in the middle of a conversation, they just quote some movie, and they're like, well, that's from that 1982 version of blah, 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 and you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Let me give you an example. Um, I, I, I have a friend um, named Seth, not Seth who does video around here. He's not my friend. Um, a different Seth. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Seth, don't turn off the cameras. Um, uh, another Seth, and he's, he's super into this one TV show. And let me see if you, if you get this reference. So um, someone was talking about, I don't know why it came up. Someone made the quote about, you know, would you rather be loved or feared? Would I rather be loved or feared? That's easy. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Anybody know? The office. The office. The office, right? And in the middle of a conversation, uh, he just quotes these random, and I'm like, you look like a nutcase. What are you talking about? <laughs> right? But he knows these like references, and he intertwines together all over the place. Scripture is the same way. Jesus didn't just like think of this phrase as he's up there on the cross. He didn't just think like, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is so bathed in the Jewish scriptures. That in the moments of hardship and pain and in rejoicing, the words that come to his mouth are the words that he's consumed the whole of his life. In fact, theologically, it's the words that 
he wrote, right? All scripture is God breathed. Jesus is God. In fact, here's, here's an interesting um, connection. This is for free. Um, John 1, you remember how uh, John, you know how John begins? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Who, who's, who's John talking about? Anybody help me? Jesus. Jesus is literally the manifestation of the word of God. In the Old Testament, the word of God is the wisdom of God made manifest, made into a person, a character. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you see a lot of this as, the, as wisdom talked about as a person. Jesus is the manifestation of the words of God. Like he knew these so deeply in his soul that in hardship and heartache, he didn't have to think of words to say. He just uttered the words that God had spoken. What would that look like for us? If in those moments of hardship, the words that first came naturally to your lips were the words of God himself. If we had a commentary, if we knew the deep cuts of scripture, like Seth knows the deep cuts of the office, you know that Jesus is quoting something. He's quoting Psalm 22. In fact, even with this little commentary, if you open it up, the first sentence of it, it just says, you know, uh, let me find it for you because I want you to see how valuable commentaries are. You should have one, right? This one was $17. It's $17 good investment. It says this in verse 46. Once again, the crucifixion scene is reminiscent of Psalm 22. So we should ask the question, What's Psalm 22 about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me read it for you. Psalm 22, verse 1 says this. Look at this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Does that sound familiar? Like, like maybe Jesus is, he's trying to get us to think of something. Jesus isn't just suffering under the weight of his crucifixion and coming death. Jesus is saying something even as he hangs on the cross. This Psalm 22 is widely agreed to be what's called a messianic psalm, which is a psalm to speak of the coming Messiah, and our Messiah is hanging on a cross, and he says this, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. And if you took the time and read through Psalm 22, it's incredible the intertwining that Matthew wants us to see as Matthew tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the intertwining of Psalm 22. Matthew knew what the psalm was about, that it was about Jesus, the Messiah. Let me just show you a couple. We don't have time to go through all of them, but um, you guys know this, right? We just talked about this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quote from Psalm 22. Look at this one. Matthew 27 a couple verses earlier, it tells us this, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Look at Psalm 22, verse seven and eight. All who see me sneer at me. They, they separate with the lip. They, they wag the head, right? You see this? Matthew wants us to see this connection because that's a weird detail. Isn't that a weird detail to describe Jesus' crucifixion? And then the, he's like, there are people that were shaking their head, those dirty people, right? He wants us to see this connection saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. You, you see this? Save yourself. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Here's another example right here. Matthew 27, verse 35, even a little earlier in our story. And when they had crucified him, 
They divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Now, if we're honest, um, this has always been a bit of a weird detail to include. Like, who really cares what happens to Jesus' clothing after he's dead, right? But it's because Matthew wants to see Psalm 22. They pierce my hands and my feet. Do you, know, do you know where they drive nails when they crucify someone? They pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So you see, this Psalm 22, the entirety of this psalm is about Jesus. It's a foretelling of what he's going to go through. And he begins it, and he wants us to see it. He wants us to hear it. If we were a good Jew in Jesus' day, as, be, as soon as he began to utter those words, we would know the rest of the psalm. We would know Psalm 22. We would know the agony that it begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's not what the psalm's about. Psalm 22 is actually a psalm about God's faithfulness. Psalm 22 is actually a psalm about when it looks like everyone's abandoned you and dogs surround you and there is no hope anywhere that God is faithful. Psalm 22 is, is a perfect example of, of one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It says this, the end of it says this, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. When everything else seems lost, when there seems no hope anywhere, when, when it seems like it's the end of the road, when the disciples are looking up at Jesus and they see him hanging there and they think, it's all lost. Everything we gave our lives to is, is gone, is worthless, is, 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 is come to the end of the road. Jesus quotes this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because see here, let me just, um, I don't have a screen, but let me just read to you verse 24. This is how, this is how uh, the second half of the psalm goes. Let me just read you one verse here. For he is not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor, listen to this, has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. So what is it? Did he forsake him? Did he abandon him? Or did he hear him? Did he see his afflictions and his pain? See, the message of the gospel is that God comes after us. Can God abandon you? No. In fact, it says in Romans, it says this, it says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then it goes through this big, huge list, but the whole premise is this, is that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God. And here's what some of you are thinking because you went to church camp enough and you thought, uh, hey, Sean, here, sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, if, if God can't be in the presence of sin, because that's, right, God can't be in the presence of sin, that's where that whole... Um, what about the book of Job? Have you read the book of Job? Do you know how the book of Job begins? Right? It, 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 you, you might not, because we just know about Job, who's like in a miserable place. And um, if you haven't read the book of Job, it's very uplifting. Uh, part of it, he's sitting there scraping ooze out of sores in his body with a broken pot, and his wife comes and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Just a little Sunday morning pick-me-up, Right? But here's how the book of Job begins. Satan 
The, the, the name Satan is the evil one. The, the, the enemy comes into the courtroom of God. Do you, think, do you think Satan has a sin issue? Like maybe like Satan has some like dark things in his soul that need to get dealt with, right? And he walks in the courtroom of God. You know the, oh, 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 Genesis. You know the story? Uh, Genesis, right? Adam and Eve. Remember when sin enters into creation? Sin enters into the creation, Adam and Eve, and all of creation is forever marred by sin and brokenness. And then you remember how that great story goes? God comes in the garden and he goes, I feel sin amongst us. Get away from me, I can't be around it. That's not what he says. In fact, it says that he searches them out. He finds them broken and marred by sin. See, the problem with that idea is that when we start to paint that idea, we paint sin as like God's kryptonite. Like God is sovereign over everything, but if there's sin in the room, then God's like, ah! Right? Here's another example, because some of you are going to be convinced. Um, have you heard of this, um, this guy, uh, Jesus, that's his name. Um, he, w- there's this thing we call the hypostatic union. It's a really fancy word because um, people who want to think they're really smart make up really fancy words to try and make all of us feel stupid. And so the hypostatic union is just this reality that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. Okay? So Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Do you remember what the accusation against Jesus was? Who do you hang out with? Sinners! Jesus doesn't go riding, uh, running behind cabinets going, get away from me, sinners! You can't be in my presence! I'm too holy, you can't be around me! Stay back, stay over there! He walks amongst them. The message of the gospel is a gospel of a God who comes after the broken, not abandons. Think, think about the story of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? Younger son, ah, I want all my stuff. He goes away, burns all of his stuff. Who leaves in that story? The son does. The father doesn't leave. The father doesn't abandon his son. In fact, the moment his son begins to return home, what does the father do? He runs to his son. He doesn't go to his son and say, oh, you've been laying in with the pigs and you were unclean. I cannot be around you. I cannot touch you until you are cleaned up. He runs to him and hugs him and embraces him. We love that part of the story. The story of the prodigal son isn't actually about the younger son. It's actually, if it's anything, it's more about the older son, but it's actually about the character of the father. But you remember where the the older son ends up? Out in a field, away from the home, away from the party. And you you remember how the story goes? The the father uh, hears word that his older son has rejected him and wandered away and refused to join in his celebration and stands out in a field and, and won't come in until the father bends to his own will. And then the father says, fine, leave him out there. I don't want that rebellious son around here anyways. No. The father goes to him. 
The father goes to him and pleads with him, invites him to come, to come back. You see, the foundational truth of the gospel we preach is a God who chases after broken and busted people consumed in darkness, that there is no person, no life, no event, no experience that is too far outside the bounds of a God who will go into the darkness and brokenness of this world to bring hope and life. So what's going on in this, in this text? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because see, here, here's the... Here's the truth. When we find ourselves consumed in sin, you've been there. Like we're all sinners, we're all broken, we're all busted. But in those moments when you, when you recognize the, the power and the impact and the brokenness that is kind of exploding out in you, and maybe you're starting to feel shrapnels exploding onto people around you that you love, and you feel the darkness and the weight and the guilt and the shame of your sinfulness, begins to settle on you just like the darkness that settled over Jerusalem. Scripture says this really powerful thing. It says that um, Jesus, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin on our behalf. It, here's, here's what's important about that. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say he who knew no sin to carry our sin but it says that Jesus experienced all of the darkness and the weight and the hopelessness and the pain and the shame and the guilt of our sin. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus experienced the fullness because you see, um, sin does something to our soul. And sin does create a distance relationally between us and God, and it feels like a darkness that's bearing down on us. But the presence of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God has never left that space. It's been said this way, and I, I think it's beautiful, um, and I think it's true. It says, uh, you can walk a thousand steps away from God, but it only takes one step to return. And sometimes when we find ourselves caught up in our own brokenness and our own sin and our own rebellion and in our own failures, we begin to believe the lies of the enemy that we're not worthy, that we're not wanted, that we're not loved, that we're not welcome, that God, that, that what we've done has been too much for God, that he could not handle us. If he or other people knew, he, he wouldn't want us around. He could not deal with how busted and broken we are. It's just, it's not what the scriptures teach. It's not what the Psalm's about. Psalms 22 is, is about a story about when everything seems lost and everything seems hopeless and everyone seems against you, that in those moments, God shows up and he is faithful and he's good. This idea that God can abandon you that God, could, that God could walk away from you has some really toxic problems, but it has some really important application that I need you to hear. And the first is this, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is to know this, that there is nothing so dark that a single candle does not vanquish the darkness. There is nothing in your life so broken and busted and messed up and ugly 
that the goodness of God does not heal and restore and redeem. There is nothing about your life that puts you too far away from God, but simply turning to him and he is there waiting for you. The second is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, um, you may have been sold a bill of goods at some point in time that following Jesus would make life easy and that he's got great plans for you. Plans for you to prosper and to flourish. And you look around your life and you look around your world and you think, <laughs> doesn't seem here. Doesn't seem like in my life. You may look around your life and you may feel darkness. There may be days, weeks, months, or years where you cry out the cry of Psalm 22, my God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? In my time of most desperate need, where are you? And as someone who's like, like it's my job to, to study this and to pursue Jesus, I can tell you that there are days and weeks and even months where it'll feel like your prayers go unheard. And it feels like there's a darkness that surrounds the city, surrounds your life. But know this, that God is always faithful. What can separate us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That because of Jesus giving his life for us, that we can become the righteousness of God, that we can become whole and healed and have life and have hope. Here's how um, Psalm 22 ends. Um, Jesus actually quotes it in the book of John. Uh, you, you probably know it, but you don't know that you know it. Psalm 22 ends this way. Um, let, me, let me just read it to you. It ends this way. I love this. This is so good, okay? Because it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in sin, in brokenness, we feel that weight. We feel that distance. But God has never abandoned us. He's not far from the cries of the afflicted and the in pain and, and the, the rejected and the, the, okay, here we go. Ready? This is what it says. They will come, people, people, generations to come, right? It says, it will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness, future generations declares righteousness, to a people who are yet to be born. That's us, right? To a people yet to be born, that it is finished. The goodness and the declaration of the cross is for marking forever in all of human history. That God will never abandon, that he will always be in pursuit of your soul, that he is always a God of mercy and grace and goodness, and that the cost for your redemption, for the cost for you to return home, it is finished. In fact, Matthew 27, this is a little verse, it says this after this verse, Jesus is on the cross, it says this, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled up his spirit, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And see, a lot of times we think that God can't tolerate us, and that God's annoyed with us, and that God's tired of us, and that God's angry. And so when we read verses like that, what we think is going on is that Jesus has died, and that God the Father is in heaven in anguish and agony going, Ah! And just tearing things, like he's throwing a temper tantrum because he's angry that his son has given up his life. But that's not at all what's happening. 
What you need to see is, is, you see the first thing it said? The veil was torn. The thing that symbolized separation was ripped apart so that we would forever be reminded that because of Christ Jesus, God is always faithful. Even when we are faithless and darkness surrounds us and dogs, Psalm 22 says, wait to consume us and they pierce us and there's brokenness and there's disease and there is death. May it be declared for all generations that he hears the cries of the afflicted. He hears your cries this morning. And that because of Jesus, it is finished. And we have hope and life and know that he is good and kind to us, even when the world around us doesn't look like it. This morning, I hope that you would know that there is a God who's not tired of you. He's not annoyed with you. He's not even disappointed with you. He loves you more than you can fathom and is inviting you this day to come to him again, to come to him again and find hope and life in him.